and welcome to the Rock and Road Podcast, Series 5, Episode 9. Almost at the end of another season. It has gone very, very quickly. And I tell you what, I have got some great stuff on the podcast today. Special guest, Steve Hackett, the Genesis guitarist and all-round musician from the 1970s. He was there when they became the huge band that they were, and he was there for the transition from Peter Gabriel on vocals to Phil Collins on vocals. We talk about that and loads more. I try out the Renault Akana hybrid car, which is fantastic. And I answer your questions that you've been putting to me recently on Twitter. All those answers coming up on this very podcast. But first, my special guest, Steve Hackett. Hi, Steve. How are you? Uh, Very well, Leona. Thank you. Um, You're about to go on tour. Um, How are you feeling today? How are you? Uh, Pretty good. We have our first uh, gig tonight. We're in Swansea in Wales. And uh, yes, we're going to kick it off over here. We've got a couple of Welsh dates and then we're, we're zooming off to other parts of the country. We're doing about 25 dates up and down doing Foxtrot, which is, um, it's got its 50th anniversary this year. So that's the main event. There'll be some solo stuff as well, of course. Yes. Uh, I believe you were rather creative during lockdown. Uh, yes, I was. Um, I was able to do, well, finish off a live album, uh, finish off an autobiography, and do two further studio albums, one of which was acoustic, which was called Under a Mediterranean Sky, and the other one was a rock album uh, called Surrender or Silence. So it was a very productive time because there weren't any live gigs, and so I had lots of, of spare time on my hands. Can we go right back to the beginning for a moment, or certainly the beginning sure. of the Genesis days? Yes, absolutely, yeah. Uh, this began with an advert in Melody Maker in 1970, yes. which said, yeah. imaginative guitarist writer seeks involvement with receptive musicians determined to strive beyond existing stagnant music forms, uh, which is a great advert, great line there. It was good, a good ad, isn't it? Yeah. It is a really good advert, and I'm glad it's yeah. the test of time. We can talk about it all these years later. Was music Sorry. a bit bland at that time? Well, um, There were a lot of bands that were doing stuff that was quite routine. I think, you know, we were in a transition of the blues-based bands towards something that was more albums-based and and ultimately progressive. Um, And I was trying to address, you know, real newsos in a way and people who wanted to experiment. I thought that I'm tired of, of coming across people who haven't got the patience or the skill to be able to um, change music. You know, I thought, let's go for a game changer here. The Beatles changed the game. You know, everything changed with them. It, it, you know, groups up to then were bands that did instrumental guitar work, you know, and it all went twang and it all sounded a bit like Bonanza. So the Beatles changed that for everybody. And I was, you know, after so many failed attempts, because I've been advertising for five years, and, and, and the wording became more and more outrageous. And so <laughs> that one was kind of Churchillian and it's called to arms or at least um, a call out to either other lunatics or to um, idealists. And that's when Peter Gabriel gave me a call because it did stand out from the rest of the, uh, the ads in the back of the all-powerful and famous Melody Maker. So many bands were formed off the back pages of that at that time and, and huge bands today some of them still exist incredible isn't it um, yeah. as you say that uh, peter gabriel saw the advert and they were looking for a guitarist at the time uh, yeah. what, what was it like getting that phone call 
Uh, well, I didn't know who he was because, um, and I didn't actually know who Genesis were because, you know, this is very, very early days, 1970. Um, I thought, yeah, I think I've heard of these guys. And, uh, I mean, they were up and, and running. They'd be doing about a year of, of gigs and they'd lost Anthony Phillips, who they'd been at school with. Because, you know, Genesis is a school band. It was formed on the playing fields of Charterhouse. There was a certain amount of privilege that went with that. But I was a, a Pimlico lad, Pimlico Primary School and all that, and um, from the centre of London. So I was from a different background. And, and Phil Collins, who joined three months before me, he was already doing uh, uh, shows with them. He, he was theatrical school, you know, he was stage school. So he, he was already a veteran. Of, of treading the boards, you have to remember he, he was in, in Oliver. He played the part of the Artful Dodger. You might think appropriately for a young, you know, young whippersnapper as he was back in the day. Uh, and I'm sure he did that very well, as he did other things very well, you know, like learning to play to a virtuoso standard playing drums. And, and he didn't really consider singing to be a respectable gig at that point. But um, events overtook him, and uh, when Peter left, you know, he he seemed like he was the obvious man for the job. He'd already sung on, on one of my solo things, um, one of my solo albums, my first attempt at a solo album. Yeah, and I knew he had a great voice, uh, and you know, there was there was something about that. So it was kind of inevitable. We auditioned a lot of other people to take over as vocalists from Peter Gabriel, but they were big shoes to fill. And, um, you know, uh, uh, Pete was very, very popular with, with audiences. So someone from within the ranks taking over worked very well as far as fans were concerned. And there's no easy gig for him when he first started because he got criticism, but he wasn't the great Peter Gabriel wearing the bat wings and the makeup and all the rest, you know. Um, but like when there's a change, you know, then lots of new people come along and go, oh, I like this. Well, that's right. That's what happens. I mean, the, the, the band, there was growing interest. First of all, we got a light show. First of all, we got a, a Mellotron. Then we got a synthesizer. Then we had, you know, uh, a lead singer who was paired, prepared to personify the songs and dress up as practically anything and anybody um, <laughs> and be outrageous with that. Um, so, yes, a, a level of flamboyance and stage presentation gave way to the the everyman aspect of, of of Phil because, you know, Phil had, had the common touch as well. You know, you could, you could tell that he wasn't, he wasn't, you know, from the playing fields of Charterhouse or Eaton. Um, so, you know, he had the, the everyman quality, which is, I think, you know, uh, the thing that made his solo career latterly, you know, so much of a success. So you were in Genesis 1971 to 1977, contributing to six studio albums, three live, one EP. Um, so what was that period like for you? You talked about um, the Phil Collins era and a little bit of Peter Gabriel there, but for you personally as the main guitarist? Well, my idea was that I would try and get the band's presentation changed because when I first saw it, it looked like a lash up and, and, and they came on like a bunch of folkies and I thought, <laughs> um, we, we, you know, we need to come on blasting really, you know, they, they, this needs to be more impressive from the word go. Otherwise people just wandered off to the bar. You know, we, we did a lot of colleges and we used to lose audiences in those days. And I was determined that we, we'd change that. So as I say, my focus wasn't just on the music. 
and to try and make that harder edge, but also on the presentation. So when you've got an appropriate light show, this makes a difference. When you've got, you know, what was frontline technology at the time, which was a Mellotron, of course, it's ancient now, but at that time, you know, that allowed us to sound occasionally like an orchestra, occasionally like a choir. Um, it was a kind of time machine. So you could go backwards and forwards. You could do futuristic stuff. You could do nostalgic stuff with that. Um, so I, I think, you know, we were, we, we were a kind of school of, 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 of musicians. We were a songwriters collective. Um, there was similarity with other bands who had similar instrumentation and, 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 and uh, similar ideas of inclusive music. You know, there's progressive music, but the idea of being inclusive means that you can, yes, you can use classical influence. You can use the influence of church music. You can use the influence of big band and jazz and pop and rock and blues and mix it all together. And that's how it really came out. We weren't alone with that. There were, there were a bunch of other bands, you know, there are five or six other bands I could mention. And you probably all know who, who they are now, but you know, around about 1970 music, was changing it was moving away from the blues based stuff of cream and Jimi hendrix and becoming um more well there was more detail there it was it, i wouldn't say it was becoming more musical because it's all valid music but you know in my background for instance i was listening as much to segovia as i was Jimi hendrix so that's a simplification but you know <laughs> that's that's how how uh, how it was, and I thought, you know, for me, listening to classical music, listening to Segovia playing Bach was a little bit like a guilty pleasure. I thought, this doesn't really relate to the mainstream. And then suddenly it did when there was a shift away from singles that were not considered to be respectable anymore towards doing more albums-based concepts. I think we were all sort of um, hanging on to the coattails of the Beatles ever since Sergeant Pepper. But, you know, music was on was on the change i mean you know the beatles had going for them um they had the world's ear from the start for a start you know and a bank balance that could afford any amount of manpower whereas you know bands like ourselves we had a keyboard arsenal you had a, a number of things so you had a guy who could play an organ an electric piano and, and a melotron and uh, and from 73 onwards we were able to, to uh, have a synth the monophonic synthesizer but you know it meant that we had all those colors at our disposal and we could do a more thoughtful kind of music because we were storytellers as well that's what sort of links us to the beatles and this is why john lennon said he considered genesis to be true sons of the beatles which i'm very proud of mm -hmm. and after the wind and weathering tour you left the band that was I during the, the mixing stage of the genesis live album seconds out Yes. And you said at the time you needed autonomy. Yes. And I'm sure you've answered this question a lot over the years, but um, yeah. a lot of my listeners might be new to this and to some yes. of your work. So can you explain yeah. what you meant by that? Okay. Uh, well, I made an album when I was still part of the, the, of the band and, and nobody uh, expected it to be a hit. And, and it was, and, and that created problems for me within the band. Um, I was accused of disloyalty and all, all the rest. And it made it very difficult for me to stay within the band. So I thought, even though I'm currently playing guitar in what is arguably the world's best band and, and extremely beloved at that time by so many people, I thought, well, you know, um, nobody 
nobody owns me. I am a free agent. Um, I'm having a gun metaphorically held to my head, and I do feel the need to honor the brain children that I have. I've got all these burgeoning ideas, and uh, I'm being told that I have no guarantees to, that the Genesis are going to do those. And at the same time, that if I go and if I do another solo, I was told, you know what you can do, don't you? So I decided to to leave uh, under under a cloud, and I thought um, I'll just show over the years because I consider it to be the marathon. I don't consider it to be the sprint. You know, the body of work, all those albums that I've done since, I like to think that they speak for themselves and they're a vast variety of different styles of things. So if you don't like one thing, there's something else to listen to. But I've spent, you know, the rest of my life so far um, showing that I wasn't just the Genesis Sideman. Looking back on that decision, are you glad you made that choice? Oh, absolutely. Yeah. If you gave me a billion pounds and and um uh, but not have you know for me it's priceless you know the wealth of ideas is what drove me then and and drives me now so i was an idealist then i'm an idealist now i still love the music uh that we did as a band but i i like to do it politics free you know internal band politics free also for me it, it, it's so important to do separate uh, things under my own name, so that I sort of fly under two banners, really. And I'm lucky that, that la- the last few albums I've made have charted. And um, um, so I'm I, I'm very you know pleased about that. That not just in this country, but so so there are two different audiences. There's audience for for my version of, of what I think is the best of Genesis, and the other audience who say, well, why didn't you do more of your solo stuff? So I'm doing both. Now, you've just released uh, Genesis Revisited Live, Seconds Out and More. Can you tell us yep. about that? Sure. Well, Seconds Out was a live album from 1977, which basically covered the whole of the 70s work of Genesis um, up to that point. Um, it was a hit back in the day, and it's been a hit all over again. I mean, it went to number five in the midweek charts next to it. It's Sheeran. Um, I believe it slipped down to number 11, but... You know, for a live album of a live album, uh, it's got no right to do any of that. So, yeah, yeah. Uh, uh, but, you know, what's the difference between a, a Cinderella song and, and something that's a huge hit? Um, isn't it strange, you know? So that's a bit like that's my chariot of fire, isn't it? Nobody expected it to do that. Nobody expects the Spanish Inquisition or even <clears throat> Seconds Out in this case. Absolutely. And of course, you're going on tour. Uh, you're on tour through September and some of October as well. Do you like touring? I love touring. Yes. I mean, it, it, it's the thing that I wrestle with, you know, every, every day, but y- you can't get me out of the ring. I, that's, what, that's what I do. So it's the first gig tonight. Uh, the band will have to remember a lot of, a lot of stuff, a lot of new stuff that they haven't played before. So um, if you think about it too much, you know, you'd never, you'd never get out of bed, would you? Can you tell us about your vocalist for the tour? Sure. Uh, that's, uh, Nad Silver does most of the vocals. Um, we share it out. We you know we have a vocal team who do harmonies, etc. And I sing one or two things myself. Uh, but Nad is, is, is the, um, the guy who does, does the Genesis stuff basically. Yep, yep. Yeah. 
Well, we really look forward to seeing you on tour. You've got the rest Thank of you. September to play and down to mid-October all around the UK. And details can be found on your website. That's right. Well, thank you very much. It's been lovely talking to you. Thank you so much. That was Steve Hackett, and if you would like to see him live, he's currently on tour around the UK, including in Hull tomorrow night, 20th of September, then off to Gateshead, Glasgow and York, followed by Buxton, Grimsby, Northampton and Sheffield on the 30th of September, and then a whole load of other dates in October as well, including Manchester, Southend, Ipswich and concluding in London at the Hammersmith Apollo. The full details will be posted on the Rock and Road podcast socials. Now, I drove a Renault Akana S-Edition E-Tech Hybrid 145 Auto. This car is half SUV and half coupe, and there are a few to compare it to, uh, like the Citroen CV hatch, the CHR Toyota. Uh, the one I've got is not a plug-in hybrid, so less electric power than the plug-ins. This is one of those um, self-charging hybrids, uh, but I'm sitting inside it now. It's really nice inside. This comes in three different trims. All of them have the rear camera as standard, which I think is really good now. I really miss it when a car doesn't have one. It has keyless entry. It's one of those credit card style keys, so you can't really clip it onto your key ring. Hence, I keep losing it. But plenty of storage um, around the front. USB points, um, 9 inch, 9.3 inch infotainment screen, which is really good. And some physical buttons as well. This one is a beautiful blue colour. In fact, the exact name is a Zanzibar Blue. And I've got the S-Edition E-Tech Hybrid. Really large boot space. Um, took the teenagers to the airport in this and fitted two massive suitcases in the back. Loads of space around them. So that's absolutely fine. With regard to the credit card key, there is a slot to put it when you get in the car. But I've now got into a routine of just leaving it in my bag and when you walk away from the car it locks anyway and then when you go back to the car it unlocks decent air vent grills big enough and chunky enough to add your car phone holder and we'll see what it drives like now press start okay if i put it into b because it goes park reverse neutral drive and then b that does the regenerative braking don't actually know what B stands for. Okay, it's gone really quiet because it's just gone into electric mode. First thing to note, I'm actually up at Wimbledon Common. The tarmac here is very bumpy and I'm feeling every single lump and bump. I feel like the suspension is quite firm. Let's just do a three-point turn. Well, that was lovely. Big turning circle and really good power steering. The controlling of the screen and the volume and everything is on a separate stick uh, behind the steering wheel, which is quite good. The steering wheel, all the controls on that are reserved for the cruise control and car related things as opposed to the entertainment. The petrol engine's kicked in now and it's got some welly. Not too much, I don't think it'll be too juicy on the fuel. This particular model I have got is £29,800. Options fitted on this are the metallic paint, the black roof and the space saver spare wheel. This one doesn't have heated seats, I think that's an optional extra. But it's very comfortable to drive, loads of room. We'll see what the kids think in a minute when I pick up Dexter anyway. Right, we've just been to McDonald's on the way home. 
Dexter, how are you finding this car? Really good. What is it about it? Isn't the seats leather? No, well, they're part leather, part fabric. They feel really comfortable. Yeah. The car's really neat. I'll tell you what I like. As you go past any petrol stations, on the sat-nav, on the screens, it tells you the price of the petrol. So it, can, it tells you it as you're approaching it. So if, if you just need to see before you pull in what the price is, you can see it on the uh, sat-nav here, which I think is quite good. That's very useful. It is, because you have to shop around these days. We're going to head up to uh, do the golfing range now, aren't we, Dexter? Mm-hmm. Anything else to say about the car? Not very. Anything about my driving? Horrible. What's wrong with it? While you're trying to turn on your phone, you weren't even driving. How rude. Here we go, here's the world of golf. Woohoo! This is the Rock and Road podcast, Leona Graham here. And last weekend on Twitter, I asked you to ask me a question which I will answer on this very podcast. So let's see what you've asked me. Rob Leonard, did you sell the table? Yes, I sanded down a table at the weekend and painted it and oiled it. Uh, but no, I haven't sold it yet. But I haven't advertised it. Uh, but if anybody wants to like, buy an occasional table, which is wooden and oiled on the top and lovely grey legs, just let me know. Do we live in a society where we can't survive when shops are closed for one day? Um, not sure why you've asked me that, but people do panic when there is a bank holiday, I must admit. Dean Jones, why didn't you watch Elvis all the way? There is a director cut coming out, which is over four hours. I tried to watch the new Elvis film biopic at the weekend. I got about 20 minutes into it and I thought, I just can't cope with this film, it's too weird. Musically, they were chopping up the songs. Visually, it was too choppy and highly edited and what I would just call weird, rather than it just happening in a nice sort of chronological, easy order. It was all just a bit chaotic. And then I googled the film, I thought, is it just me? Turns out that the director of this film was Baz Luhrmann and he did films like Moulin Rouge and The Great Gatsby. Both of those films I tried to watch and also couldn't get through them. So it's just simply a case of me not liking Baz Luhrmann films. By contrast, Richie Firth of Absolute Radio piped up on Twitter and said, best film he's ever seen, loved it. So that just highlights the complete differences between me and Richie. I cannot stand that kind of film. He loves it. Glenn Longhurst. Why has salted caramel chocolate taken over the world as the best chocolate out there? Now, there is a very important question, probably the most important question you've asked me. I don't know, but it needs to stop. The combination of salt and caramel is disgusting. Just caramel was a lovely snack, a lovely ice cream and a lovely treat. But now it's salted caramel and it's on every restaurant menu ever. I can't stand it. And you know what? Chocolate is my favourite thing. And sometimes there is no chocolate on a menu for pudding. It is just salted caramel. That is when there is a real problem. Tracy Jones, did you do your garden? Yes, mowed the lawn, thank you. That's all done. Gary Clark, what was the first musical artist you interviewed and how did it go? My first interview was Andreas Johnson at V2000. And I was out the back in, well, they call it the backstage area, which is basically just a table around the back. And I just interviewed him. I had a list of questions. I was extremely nervous, but he was very, very kind and chatty. And it went really well. 
My second interview was back in the Absolute Radio studios with Genesis, but at that time it was just Tony Banks and Mike Rutherford. Mike Rutherford seemed to be really grumpy that day, and I just felt the interview went really badly. I brought up Phil Collins, who at that time they were not touring with or making music with, and they seemed to be really annoyed that I'd mentioned Phil Collins, and from that point the interview went downhill. And I remember just shaking, thinking, this is going really badly, I don't want to do any more interviews, and it put me off for ages. So I had to be coaxed back into them. I've done loads more interviews since the COVID days because people are much more willing to chat to you over Zoom. It's quicker and easier than then coming all the way into the studios. And I prefer it as well because I can have some notes and questions on a screen in front of me. I can quickly glance at them more easily than if it was face to face. So that's, uh, that's been suiting me much better. Kelly Rustin, have you ever been tongue-tied interviewing one of your musical heroes? Well, I'm normally prepared for my interviews, as I said. I've normally got some notes ready. But I did bump into Ozzy Osbourne in the corridors of Absolute Radio one time. And I was literally frozen to the spot, mouth dried up, and I didn't speak. And I will regret that forever. Because I wanted to say, hi, Ozzy. I'm a huge fan of you and Black Sabbath. Can I have a photograph? Can I ask you some questions? But I just stood there like a complete plank and didn't say a word. So, yes... Gary Hyatt, which band or artist have you never played on the radio but would like to? I'd like to play much more Black Sabbath, actually, whilst we're talking about them on the main Absolute Radio station. I think they are fantastic and they're one of my favourite bands of all time. Nick Bruzon, if you could rid the world of salted caramel, but the price for doing so was wearing a big coat 24-7, which would you pick? <laughs> the big coat protocol, because of Bish and Richie on the Home Time Show, of course. Um, I would go for... <sighs> Well, I wouldn't wear the big coat 24-7 because I cannot stand being hot, especially in the summer. Mike Gordon, I saw that you were at the Taylor Hawkins tribute show. What do you think Dave will do with the band after the LA show? God, that's a good question. I just can't call it. I don't know if he's going to carry on um, in much the same way that they did on that day and having different guest drummers. I don't think they'll get a permanent replacement or they'll have like a session drummer or will they just jack it all in and he'll start something new again like he did after Nirvana. If I had to bet on it, I'm going to say they'll carry on, maybe in a year's time, but with guest drummers. Ian Cole, if you had to choose between riding a motorbike every day or listening to rock music every day, which one would you choose? I would listen to rock music every day. As much as I love riding a motorbike, I could sacrifice that and carry on with rock music. Michael Perrin, given that the whole Taylor Hawkins tribute concert was epic, what would be your standout moment? And Michael says, for me, it was Shane Hawkins drumming on My Hero. <sighs> for me, it was Brian Johnson when he came out and sung Back in Black with the Foo Fighters and oh, Lars from Metallica on drums. It was just fantastic. My second best moment, I think, was Justin Hawkins of The Darkness singing Under Pressure with Queen. I never realised I love Justin Hawkins so much, but his vocals were fantastic. Andrew Roberts, have you started your Christmas shopping yet? No, absolutely not. It is not to be discussed or even mentioned until about November. Now, I'll tell you what, as I've got older, I have got a little bit more prepared and sometimes I might order something in advance, but no, certainly not going out physically shopping. Stuff that. Final question from Simon Jones. What's the worst band you've seen live? Mine was Judas Priest at Priest Fest in 2010. <laughs> uh, mine was Bob Dylan. I can't remember what year, but it was like somebody just whining and wailing on stage. It was absolutely horrendous, torture to my ears, and I had to leave early. Do not tell Ben Burrell about that.
Thank you for those questions. If you have any more, please ask me and just tag Rock and Road Pod so I know to answer them here next time on the podcast. Well, thank you so much for listening to this season of the podcast. The new season out very soon because I'm going to bring you an interview with Mid Your. I've got more motorbikes and cars to try out and answer some of your questions. So do keep it with the Rock and Road podcast. Thank you for listening. Please like, rate and review and check out the photographs which accompany each episode on Instagram and Twitter at Rock and Road Pod. Thank you for listening. 